Oh, hi. Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley, and you probably shouldn't go in there for a little while, just saying. In this episode, we're talking about water. Steve Healy is my guest, and he is Executive General Manager of Climate and Population Adaptation at Colibin Water, which is a hefty title. He met me in one of my favourite places. I walk my dog down by Campbell's Creek all the time, and we took a seat right near the creek. And that creek is one of my favourite places because no matter what time of year it is, it always is full of water. And that is because it's just downstream from the water reclamation plant, or sewerage plant, as we used to say. Much of the treated water is released into the stream, and thanks to that and the work of the Campbell's Creek Landcare Group, there is a beautiful stretch of land along Campbell's Creek with a lovely walking path and a lot of restored native vegetation. And because of that restored native vegetation and that flow of water, the native animals have moved back in and people have even sighted the shy and elusive platypus in this part of the creek. Castlemaine is considered semi-arid and I've always noticed that this landscape really knows how to be dry. Every summer I'm amazed at how quickly we go from green grass to cracked barren earth. As many of you know, we live on upside down country. I've talked about this before in the podcast. So what had been deep, fertile topsoil from countless generations of Aboriginal stewardship was all dug up and dug over and washed away in the gold rushes of the 1800s. Within just a few decades, the place was decimated. All the trees were cut down, water sources were diverted and microclimates that would have kept our landscape more hydrated were destroyed. So that's the background of our place and why a rehabilitation project like along Campbell's Creek by the local land care group is, is just a small win but a significant win. Climate change predictions for our region point to hotter and drier weather but when it rains it's going to be more extreme so big dumps and big storms. So water is on a lot of people's minds when they think about how we might be able to keep living here through a climate affected future. I asked Steve to have a chat so that we could talk about how water and wastewater is managed now and also what the government and organisations like Colibin Water are doing to ensure that we have enough water as we move into a climate uncertain future. As ever, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country. Jara Country is the traditional home of the Jajawurrung people who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. We thank them for the care they have taken and continue to take of country. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So what does Colibin Water do and who are you employed by? What's your brief? Yeah, so Colibin Water are a water corporation in Victoria. We are wholly owned by the state government, but we are sort of separate to state government. We have our own board, so we report into effectively the water minister through the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. 
So in Victoria, we are, we're, we're state-owned, so we don't report to federal government. And we operate services primarily of water and wastewater services, so urban services, but we also work in a rural space as well, which is a bit unusual in Victoria. So we're a regional water corporation in the Murray-Darling Basin, so it's quite a complex arrangement that we have with both state, federal and governments and various other bodies. So we supply urban water services to 49 towns in regional Victoria, all the way from Trentham in the south to Echuca in the north, out to the west, Wedderburn, and to the east, uh, Heathcote, and includes the major centre of Bendigo and a whole lot of other towns in between. So we've got about 77,000 urban customers and about 1,100 rural customers. And those rural customers uh, receive water primarily out of channels, sometimes pipelines. Some of them are irrigators of apple orchards, like in Harcourt, but a lot are stock and domestic customers uh, in and around Bendigo primarily but also around some of the uh, fruit growing areas around Bendigo and all the way up to uh, Raywood. So it's a fairly extensive network of rural channels, about 450 kilometres. But urban services is primarily what we do. So you must just be one of several water boards across the state. How many are there that the state government employs? Oh, I think there's about 18 or 19. There's a few in Melbourne. So three retail water companies and one bulk water company, effectively. But most of them are are regional urban companies. And there's also some just primarily rural, like Goulburn Murray Water. We are a customer of Goulburn Murray Water, like other sort of customers. We receive bulk water from them, like irrigators do and so forth. So, yeah, we're one of many, head office based in Bendigo, but uh, we've got employees and little offices all over the place. So I've done some episodes up in Mildura, so my listeners hopefully will be aware of the Murray River and what an amazing water source the Murray-Darling Basin is that you just referred to. Where else does the water that you use come from that that can't be all of it? Because I know we've got the Loddon River as a major river in our region. How does that fit into the picture of where the water comes from? Yeah, we've got multiple sources of water. So Traditionally, Colibane water for its main supplies have been coming out of the Colibane River. So we've got three main storages located uh, near Kyneton, the Upper Colibane, Lauriston and Malmesbury Reservoir. And they uh, have supplied Bendigo, Kyneton, Castlemaine since probably about 1890. So a fairly old set of infrastructure and that's a through a whole lot of channels and so forth. Also, we have a connection to the Campaspe River for Bendigo at Lake Epilock. There's a whole lot of other supplies here. The Loddon is. We also get supplies from Grampians, Wimmera, Mallee water, so from the Grampians effectively. And we also have a connection to the Goulburn system, so the whole network of channels are essentially supplied out of the Goulburn River. And that supplies towns like Bort, Lockington, Rochester and so forth. But also there's the pipeline connection to Bendigo from that as well. And yes, you mentioned the Murray River. So yeah, Chuka and some of our towns in the north like Kahuna, uh, Gunbauer and so forth. So yeah, it's quite a number of water sources. If you think about it, it stretches from the Grampians in the west all the way to Lake Eildon in the east and south all the way from Upper Colibane Reservoir and, and the Murray as well. So yeah, quite quite a number of different water sources for our customers. It's interesting because we live in like central Victoria and around Castlemaine especially is semi-arid I believe it's described as and historically we've had a lot of gold mining which diverted and changed the water courses of our region quite significantly and reshaped the landscape. <laughs> a lot and we also have these remnant water devices called water races when i walk my dog i often walk the water races and there's paths that are relatively flat because the water race is designed to 
feed water from a great distance away at a very, very, very gradual incline down to somewhere else far away. And so there's a walking path right beside them. What was the history of them? And and do you know if any of them are still used? Yeah, lots of them are still used. And that's, uh, yeah, 450 kilometres of channels pretty much. And most are sort of Bendigo based, but there's the Colibam Main Channel which goes from Malmesbury all the way to Bendigo. That's about 70 kilometres long, and the Lianganook track runs along that uh, that channel, which is pretty amazing uh, to walk and ride along that. But, there, yeah, there's extensive channels around. So around Castlemaine, there's a Poverty Gully channel, which is no longer used, but the track is beside that. And there's an offshoot of that down towards Campbell's Creek and the Jail Hill channel around Castlemaine as well. There's quite a few. A lot of them are no longer in use. It would have been a lot more kilometres of channels back in the day, whenever the day was. There was a lot in the gold rush, but also there was also a lot of channels built for farming and for water. So the Colaba main channel was built out of actually a whole lot of health issues that were coming up in Bendigo. So Bendigo and to a certain extent Castlemaine as well, during the gold rush there was just a real lack of water. And that's why the gold rush in Castlemaine and Bendigo, Bendigo in particular, was the winter diggings because that was the only time you could work in the fields because it was too hot and dry. So they needed water. So that's uh, one of the reasons why those channels were put in, but a lot of it was for agriculture as well. So the peak time when they were in use was probably the 1930s. Obviously the gold rush was over, but there was a whole lot of agriculture work that was going on. And a lot of it's still there and a lot of it's used. There's a lot of our customers who have uh, pretty substantial agricultural businesses built around that supply and Bendigo as well, solely supplied this year because it's reasonably wet from the channel. It's amazing that it's still in use from from around 1890. Do you know how they're constructed? Back in the day, it would have been just earthen constructed, a lot of horses and all that would have been used. We've lined the Colaba main channel mostly with concrete lining and there's been a lot of piping of channels, so the whole Harcourt system's been piped now. That was done in about 2016, but yeah, primarily it's earthen, um, which works pretty well. I mean, there's a fair few leaks from that, but that's that's where the system has come from so originally earthen but yeah a lot of concrete lining it's really amazing isn't it because it's all this open air just water flowing and following gravity it's it's such a simple idea but it would have taken such a lot of construction to build such lengths of it anyway i'm going off topic you supply water to households and townships and urban areas and some agricultural areas what else do you do because i know you take care of what comes out of houses as well yeah that's it's not often thought about people flush the toilet and and forget about it which is fine that's the service we provide but it's actually the biggest part of our business in so many ways from cost point of view uh, and also energy use as a huge amount of energy goes into sewage treatment so it's it's very much a big part of our business and the part of the business that's forgotten about but that's okay that's that's what we're there for yeah it's called a water reclamation plant is that right yeah, that's right. So that comes from the term about reclaiming the water, so recycling the water. So we have some recycled water customers. The golf course receives a lot of recycled water, but also Campbell's Creek. So there's a substantial amount of recycled water or treated sewage that goes into Campbell's Creek and, yeah, it forms a habitat for platypus and so forth. So it's actually... A lot of people wouldn't class that as recycled water, but there is a benefit there. It's interesting because a lot of the creeks in Australia and especially around here, they're designed by nature like to dry up for certain parts of the year. They're not, they're not supposed to run all year, but it's really nice to have a creek that runs all year in the height of it 
an Australian summer. It's such a it's such a restful place to come and walk where there's still green and there's a lot of bird life and animal life on the creek. So we're actually sitting just on Campbell's Creek right now. And yeah, it's really nice to have a spot so close to home that's got permanent flow. Yeah, that's right. There's something very soothing about having that flow. But yeah, you're right. It would normally dry out for periods of time in summer. But you've also got to remember that in the catchment of Campbell's Creek, there is a lot of agriculture and farm dams and there's a lot of built-up environment that has completely changed that flow regime. So for how long it would have dried out over summer, I don't know. But I know there are some historical photos showing fern trees in the creek. I think towards, yeah, maybe not the Campbell's Creek part of it, but the actual Barker's Creek part of it. So that's completely different to what you see now. So how that was sustained and whether or not there was permanent flow, I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. The, the entire landscape and ecosystems have been changed since colonisation. I know that the Landcare Group is doing a lot of really good work to rehabilitate some of the original species in this area. Yeah, they absolutely are. Friends of Campbell's Creek have done an amazing job. So whilst I might say the treated wastewater stream is providing habitat to, to, for platypus, it's probably in conjunction with the work that Friends of Campbell's Creek have done in providing that habitat because that's where they are. They're in that part of the creek which they've rehabilitated. So yeah, it's quite a good partnership I think that yeah, has really changed the landscape here. Water obviously is a major concern in Australia. We're a very, very dry continent, even on this eastern side of the nation where we're relatively green compared to the desert centre. And it's a conversation that's been happening for a long time is water management. But with climate change, we're going to see potentially some quite different weather patterns. How seriously does Culliburn Water take climate change? Are you future planning around climate change? Yeah, we are taking it very seriously. So climate change... Uh, has impacted central Victoria for quite some time. So it's not a future thing, it's a past, current and future thing. So we've got really good data on the stream flows that have traditionally supplied central Victoria, so Bendigo, Kite and Castlemaine, as I said before. And so that dates all the way back to the early 1890s. And there's been a substantial change in stream flow. So there's about a reduction of 23% in stream flow from about 1974 onwards and about a 53% reduction in stream flow from about 1997 onwards compared to that long-term historical average. And that's huge, very significant reduction. So that's climate change. Um, it's also landscape change as well. But yeah, the future is, is quite challenging when it comes to that. But there's a number of things that uh, Coleman Water have done in the past and mainly our customers have done. So a reduction in household use. So there was a substantial change in household use during the millennium drought. So if you remember, people were going out and getting dual flush toilets. They were getting shower heads that reduced flow. They were using their grey water and all of that. And that's still there. All that changes. Obviously rainwater tanks are used now and all that. And even before that, the 82-83 drought, that changed people's attitudes as well. So people are no longer washing down their driveways with hoses and all that sort of stuff. So it's a complete behaviour change that has really helped our communities as well and will help forever into the future. As far as activities that Colburn Water are doing, there's been a number of projects over the years. So the original source of water was from the Colburn River and then from the 1890s onwards and then for Bendigo, and it does help Castlemaine as well. There's Lake Epilock pump station was built in, in the 1960s, but then also the connection to the Goulburn system, which was built during the millennium drought. Now that 
helps Castlemaine as well in that it takes the Bendigo supply from the same supply that's supplying Castlemaine, so it frees up more water for Kyneton and Castlemaine. So it all sort of helps. So Bendigo being the major city is now got these other two supply sources, which means that Castlemaine's supply is secure. But into the future, there's a number of things we can do. Reusing treated sewage is a great one, so recycled water. So Bendigo's got a pretty substantial recycled water scheme, a golf course in Castlemaine, and I think there's some more we can do in partnering with Man Alexander Shire for um, recycled water. For watering parks and gardens and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. It would be great to see some recycled water projects get up in the Castlemaine area. So camp reserve, um, botanical gardens and so forth. They're a long way from the plant, unfortunately, but it is possible. I mean, it's been done in Bendigo and in Kyneton, and we've got a whole lot of other schemes as well. But yeah, that Kyneton and Bendigo have probably got the major recycled water schemes in our region for parks and gardens and so forth and race courses and, and all of that. The, the other thing into the future is probably still better use and conservation of drinking water I think on householders can do more use of rainwater and more use of stormwater on that probably on that municipal scale so that whole town scale you know for new subdivisions and so forth is probably there's a bit more work to do there and also I think groundwater is probably the next place where we can explore. We're looking at a project at the moment to, to utilise managed aquifer recharge, which is a technical term for basically taking surface water when, there's, when it's plentiful and actually putting it under the ground for when there's dry times. So still operating within the entitlement framework of Victoria for taking water out of the environment, but for when there are times when there's a lot of it, actually putting it under in the aquifer and storing it. Uh, where it doesn't evaporate for use later on. So a lot of work to do to make that happen, but that's it's just an idea. That's a really interesting idea because there's a lot of concern about how much we're taking from underground aquifers that have taken millennia to fill up and be what they are and humans are happily pumping out of them all over the place without really understanding what the long-term implications of that might be. They're quite heavily managed though so there's a lot of monitoring balls around the state and people monitor levels and restrictions go on for groundwater use and so forth so look i i don't know if it's perfect but that's that's heavily regulated and monitored so obviously any work that we wanted to do can't go on without uh, regulatory approval so we are a groundwater user for towns like trentham but we don't get any special favors from the regulator we're just like anyone else and uh, so it's all heavily heavily managed so i think it, it's probably there's still i think some work to go in in understanding it all i'd agree with that but there's a lot of information these days about levels and aquifer use and all of that. But strategically refilling it sounds very wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, particularly, I mean, one of the biggest impacts of climate change in central Victoria is the uh, variation between boom and bust years, those massive drought years and the flood years, and that's getting stronger and stronger. So in the last 20 years, we've had the driest year on record, and we've also had one of the wettest years on record and that seems to be increasing. So, and it's also in the science as well that one of the biggest impacts of climate change is that boom and bust. So during boom years, Extreme, extreme weather. Extreme weather events, yeah, that's right. So maybe the best way of taking the opportunity from that is to use the water from those flood years and put it underground for those drought years. Right, so we've seen recently, especially after all the lockdowns have eased from Melbourne, which has been the most lockdown city in the world, Um, from COVID. We've seen a lot of people moving out of the city 
because I think they've realised that being in a city is not very conducive to living through any kind of a large-scale emergency, which was what COVID has been. And I think people are starting to go, oh, maybe this is not where we want to be. For future events, whether they're thinking of climate change or not, if we see population growth out here continually what does Colburn Water have to think about? There's a number of things so yes certainly there's been a lot of interest in for people moving to regional Victoria and as residents of regional Victoria we can understand why it hasn't really happened to the degree that you read in the media not yet I suspect it will at some point but it takes a long time for all of those houses and subdivisions all that sort of stuff to happen but it is it is happening there's a lot of interest well you can't buy a house anymore like they get snapped up and the prices have gone up several hundred thousand dollars in the last couple of years yeah yeah I think existing houses yeah that, that's right but I think the existing um, housing stock, as real estate agents would say, is probably limiting the amount of people who can move here because of the price, yeah. So there's a number of things we're doing. We are certainly working with local governments in what's called the colder corridor growth. So that includes Mount Alexander, Shire, Macedon Ranges and City of Greater Bendigo because that's where a lot of people are moving to that sort of growth area. Mm. And also the Shire of Camp Haspi with Echuca. And we are particularly looking at what infrastructure is required to meet the needs of that growth. But as far as climate change goes, it's an interesting thing that there's a real opportunity for recycled water. So people talk about Bendigo doubling in population. So that might be 100,000 now or thereabouts and going to 200,000 by, say, 2050, 2055. So therefore being sort of the size of current Geelong. But the opportunity from that is recycled water. We know more about the the uses of recycled water now than when, say, Bendigo went through its growth period. I think there's a real opportunity for new subdivisions and the way that we can use recycled water and produce recycled water with technology. So when you talk about recycled water, are you talking about... I know there have been trials in places like Toowoomba in Queensland where recycled wastewater has been brought back into the system as drinking water. Is that the sort of level of recycling you're talking about? No, not necessarily. No, it's more recycled water for green environments, so parklands and so forth. It might get to that stage at some point. I don't think in Toowoomba they ever actually went down that path, but recycled water... Uh, for drinking water is used in Perth through managed aquifer recharge actually. It's been used in, I think it's Nambia since about the 1960s. It's heavily used in California, Texas and a whole lot of places around the world. Even Antarctica, they've got a remote recycled water treatment plant which can be operated from the Australian mainland for the Australia base. Um, So it's, the technology's all there. I get that for some people a yuck factor might be there. However, there's been numerous studies that show something around the 60 or 70% of the community quite happy with that and see it as something necessary that's going to happen in the future. So we're not necessarily planning for it now. It's more around uh, parks and gardens and so forth so that we can substitute recycled water instead of being drinking water. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, our whole planet is infinitely recycling water all the time, really. (laughs) In a natural kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in terms of perhaps a growing population and a drying and more extreme weather climate, how does Coliburn see social justice or social equity how important is that in terms of your future planning to make sure water is available to everyone yeah it's it's very important so we are going through a preparation of our pricing submission at the moment 
So we are on a, we're on a five-year cycle for pricing submission. So every five years, we submit to an independent regulator, the Essential Services Commission, a, uh, a body of evidence that will determine what prices we can uh, apply to customers. So, and that body of evidence includes a whole lot of feedback from customers on what services they want and what prices they're willing to pay for those services. And then the Essential Services Commission makes a recommendation or actually makes a determination on what that price, is, what that price should be. And that is about having a, what they call a deep dive into issues that are related to cold water services and climate change and population growth and all that sort of stuff. So that that will form that body of evidence and what people say in that community panel and also what the community say in general will um, feed into that pricing submission. So what the Essential Services Commission are looking for is really detailed evidence on what people, what services they want but, but, but also what they're willing to pay for that. And one of the key questions is customers experiencing vulnerability, which has been a hot topic, I think, in all circles over the last 18 months. So yeah, it's very important about how, how we manage that. So one of the questions is what should the general population pay for services and then should people experiencing vulnerability pay a lot less or how much less or what's equitable for people there? Yeah, that's really important. And I guess if you are seeking for householders to consume less water from the main... I talk a lot about electricity, so I wanted to say from the grid, but (laughs) most people get their water at the household level from their taps and from your big bulk sort of storage. But actually, you would want to encourage households to start collecting and reusing water. So what can households do and how can households future-proof to be more secure with water with climate change coming and assist themselves but also the community in being more water secure. Yeah I think what people can really do uh, and I think what you're alluding to is rainwater tanks and that's great for the community. It's not just for individuals that the benefits there are for individuals particularly when we go into drought conditions and say there might be water restrictions applied but even before that point when when there is enough water uh, and we don't need to implement water restrictions it's really good for the whole community. So what one person saves means that water is saved in the whole pool for everyone else so if someone can afford a water tank and does have the room for a water tank it's kind of like almost a community asset that that's what they're putting in so yeah i would encourage people to do that if they feel they want to if they feel they can and i would also yeah just generally encourage a smart water use that's um which people have been doing for quite a long time now it's been really good You spoke about the millennium drought and other times when the community's taken significant steps towards water reduction in their consumption. At those times, there were also often incentives or subsidies. So you could get a free low water shower head or taps or something at certain points if you jumped on the deals. Do you think there will ever be offers around water tanks or things like that in the future to encourage people to install water collection on their property? Yeah, there might be incentives for water tanks. Part of the problem is making sure that they're actually used. So it's one thing to collect water, but are people actually going to use it? So that's a difficulty one, Where, whereas with shower heads, if it's installed, then it's always going to provide a benefit. Mm, sure. What about grey water and other reusing water on site? Is that is that encouraged? That's a good question that I'm not sure the answer to. I have a feeling that could be a plumbing, like there could be some plumbing rules around that. I know everyone did it, but I don't know what the rules are around that. Because I know you need a certain amount of flow through the sewerage system to keep everything 
running and if everyone stopped using letting water go through you would have problems with the system. During the millennium drought there was a lot of grey water systems installed which did it did change the concentration of sewage slightly but not a lot because um, a lot of the the major flows in systems is uh, washing machines and kitchen sinks and toilets as well and commercial users of water so it's not a big difference it's slightly but not a lot. If you are independent but effectively created by the state government is it political like how much does whichever government is in power impact what's happening with our water supply yeah we are answerable to government departments so it's really the politics of the day might influence government departments reporting to them so it it does perhaps to a certain extent but i think the way to think about what we do is the services of providing water and sewage services have been around for a long time and that's fundamentally what we do. It can change a little bit, but, uh, but not a great deal. And I don't think any government wants to deal with, you know, a massive health crisis due to unhygienic <laughs> treatment. No, th- th- that's not going to change, yeah. yeah. Um, th- there can be some slight things around the edges, but, but yeah. that's about all. Yeah. And so there's a lot of talk in sustainability circles about circular economies and I know that already with your water reclamation plant and everything it's it's effectively a circular economy but do you see yourselves participating in a circular economy of a kind? Yeah yeah we, we do probably a good example of that is biosolids reuse so it's the sludge the treated sludge that comes out of the sewage treatment plant and that is treated to a point where it can be applied to help productivity on farms. So we do a lot of that. I mean, we don't do the farming ourselves, but we provide the product. And that's where that whole circular economy can come in as well. So it's not just water, but it's also the solids part. There are a lot of projects going on in the Victorian water corporation sector, looking at recycling construction materials and all sorts of things, and looking to reduce waste like any business does yeah there's a lot of projects in that space as well that's intriguing is there any examples you want to give of that i can't remember the projects that we're involved in but a lot of projects in the victorian water sector sort of we pull resources and funding and everyone will make a small contribution to a project and it ends up being a substantial project where they look into these things prove a concept and then people roll them out yeah it's a really good way we all work together because we're not in competition with each other Mm. we're just in different areas so that's really interesting. So you're actually helping develop new technologies collectively with other water management corporations. Yeah, and partnering with industry as well. So it might be that private industry will bring a great idea to a water corporation that gets shared as an idea and might require some funding to prove the concept. And then everyone benefits from that. So all water corporations in Victoria who are interested in it can become involved and, and reap the benefits. Cool. And I guess that leads me on to one of my last questions is, do you see anything exciting or a bit revolutionary happening elsewhere in the world about water and how it couldn't be used? I, I mean, I've seen pictures of very elegant spiral things that are capturing water from the air and things like that. Is there is there anything that's caught your imagination about what the future of water could be? Oh, that's a good one. I, I don't know about capturing water from the air in central Victoria the air is pretty dry but I think I think probably treatment and particularly recycled water treatment is probably where technology is as advanced probably over the last 20 years and also our understanding of 
of what that means, how the water, recycled water can be used and so forth. I think stormwater harvesting is probably a big, big area for, for advancement as well. So there are a few things that are happening. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I guess I'm, I'm just, this is sort of not in my list of questions, but I feel like water is a topic that a lot of people worry about and really feel like we're going to run out of some time. And there's a lot of talk of, can we reclaim salty water? But I mean, the earth is covered in water surely we'll figure it out yeah yeah there's there's lots of desalination plants and and so forth where we are we're a long way from the sea so that's difficult however i think the opportunities to use water wisely like what we've done what the communities have done over the last 20 years has been substantial and that's been forced because of the millennium drought but i think it's not it's not an insolvable problem, not at all. I think it just takes a combination of will from government, will from corporations and the community and technology all combined together with private partnerships and, yeah, I think, I think we can achieve it. I guess any talk of privatising water rings alarm bells in terms of accessibility and, and fair access to water. And I know up in Mildura and along the whole Murray-Darling there's, there's long and very heated arguments about how water's used and by you know the fish kill in the Murray Darling in 2019 was a significant event which just brought home how how carefully water has to be managed across the continent do you think that the state governments play nicely with each other like you say within Victoria there's a lot of cooperation but do you think across the border <laughs> and between governments which some might be labor and some might be liberal you know is there cooperation there's a whole lot of frameworks to drive cooperation. Whether or not there actually is or not, I don't know. I'm not close enough to that. Like, I read things in the media like anyone else, but whether or not that's just the media, I don't know. So what else is Colour Water thinking about in terms of climate change, adaptation, mitigation, all of those sort of things? What role can you play? Yeah, pretty substantial role. So we unfortunately contribute about... 30,000 tonnes of carbon emissions, of carbon equivalent emissions, roughly. A little bit less at the moment, but that's pretty much where we sit, which is a fairly high number. That is mainly from energy and wastewater treatment. So, so it's split into the various scopes, one, two, and three, generally for carbon emissions. So scope two is energy, and that's about 90% of our carbon emissions comes from energy use, and about 10% from the, the emissions from wastewater treatment, so that methane and nitrous oxide and so forth. So we are committed to using 100% renewable energy by 2025, and that commitment's come from state government. So this is one of those elements where state government does direct water corporations. So earlier in 2021, state government made that commitment and said the whole of government business, whole of um, state government, Victorian business, will use 100% renewable energy uh, by 2025, and we're part of that whole of government business. So we're committed to that. We have another commitment where we will be zero carbon by 2030. So then we need to get that last 10% from our uh, wastewater treatment or those emissions. So that's a challenge because it can't necessarily be done at the plant. It might be carbon offset planting or something like that. We've got a bit of work to do to figure that out, but then so does everyone. So it's another one of those technologies that will come across. It might be a technology of planting trees, but that's just um, something that we've got to do. So yeah, we're pretty proud of that commitment. It's, um, it's quite good. Yeah, that's really great. And I think that's the level of like, if our federal government would just come on board, that's how quickly things could change across all of Australia. Even seeing the local councils across Australia 
one by one commit to declaring a climate emergency and then that leads them to making an action plan about climate change and that leads to you know committing to renewables at a council level which leads to initiatives to help the community reach it they all just roll in but that government leadership is so important yeah it is yeah I, I think it's a pretty substantial commitment by the state government I think it will drive a whole lot of investment in Victoria around it could be solar wind or um, some sort of renewable projects that yeah it's going to substantially change what we do great and it sounds like it will force the infrastructure change that's needed to allow for renewables to be an effective energy source across the state yeah that's right it's not all about solar panels somewhere that's you've got to get the energy from those panels into uh, people's houses and, and our business as well great do you know what sort of method might get employed to do the carbon offsetting or who would organize that uh yeah we're it's another one of those projects, it's the whole of the water sector in Victoria who's looking at this because everyone's got that challenge. And we're also working with catchment management authorities, particularly North Central Catchment Management Authority. And I think there's there's an opportunity there to work with Jajarang as well and their understanding of country and achieving a whole lot of benefits, jobs, economic activity for Jajarang. Also I think there's an opportunity in in knowledge gaining, biodiversity, implications like there's a whole lot of things, just erosion control. When you think about offsetting through plantations, I'm not talking about you know, blue gum uh, forests, we're talking about you know natural trees that should be in this environment. So it's, it's a challenge, but I think it's a great opportunity for other organisations that we can work with. Yeah, that's great. Those sort of partnerships can be so important on so many different levels. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and I think it's certainly needed, that kind of investment in Victoria. We do a fair bit of work with Jajarang and their their commercial jandak in everything from we've got a barbecue shelter and a whole lot of landscaping that was done at Upper Colliban Reservoir earlier in 2021 that was done, which was fantastic. It looks really good. So you commissioned those guys to do that work? Yeah, that's right. Designed and built by Jajarang. There's been a whole lot of other work where Jajarang people have done a lot of work on our rural channel network, cleaning channels, repairing channels and those sorts of things, which gets a whole lot of people out on country and exploring parts of Victoria that they may not know about because not many people do go exploring in the bush and find these sorts of remote channels. And there's a whole lot of other work as well that we work with Jajarang in our region as well. And we we also have done a little bit of work or we're trying to do some more work with other traditional owner groups in our region like Tongarung and Yorta Yorta and Barapa Barapa. But certainly Jajarung is probably the most prominent one in our region because their area or their country covers a substantial part of our region. Absolutely. And is there much consulting you need to do with them in terms of land use or water catchment? Yeah, there is. Yeah, in many ways, actually. So whenever we're doing a project, we consult with Jajarung on sort of different levels. So we're developing an urban water strategy, which we have to submit to government in March 2022. And that is a 50 year outlook on water and wastewater services, water security and so forth. And yeah, we've been engaging with Jajarang on that for quite some time. And we engaged with them on the previous version five years ago as well, trying to work out what are the cultural and economic needs of water for Jajarang and looking at how their knowledge can be incorporated in what we need to do and so forth. So, yeah, there's a lot of engagement there.
that's it. That was Steve Healy from Colibin Water. He's the Executive General Manager of Climate and Population Adaptation. And you can see links to Colibin Water and the state government's position on water management in the show notes at saltgrasspodcast.com or within the podcast app. For those of you listening on Main FM or 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.